I'm Travis Mitchell, Head of the Economic Policy and Small States Team at the Commonwealth Secretariat. As we know, financial technology is being used more and more in several countries across the world and indeed in the Commonwealth. Recognizing this revolution and a response to a request from Commonwealth Central Bank Governors for support with understanding and regulating fintech applications, the Commonwealth Secretariat has developed the Commonwealth Fintech Toolkit. The Commonwealth Toolkit provides technical guidance on a range of fintech topics, including blockchain and cybersecurity, and it offers a framework for governments to build an enabling environment for fintech development. This toolkit is part of our training being offered by our partners, the Universities of Oxford and Cambridge, which aims to take our fintech capacity building initiative a step further by offering in-depth fintech training to Commonwealth member governments. That's all for now. Please listen and enjoy your fintech journey around the Commonwealth. Welcome to Fintech Journeys, part of the Commonwealth's Fintech Toolkit. This three-part podcast goes more deeply into some of the toolkit's case studies. We'll be exploring how three quite different countries have embraced financial technology on their own fintech journeys. I'm Jemima Kelly, a journalist at the Financial Times. I've spent much of my career writing about fintech and cryptocurrencies. Join me to examine the potential and the pitfalls of the newest financial technologies that could reshape the way we bank, do business, spend, share and save. In this episode, Papua New Guinea. One of the major obstacles that holds people in developing countries back is a lack of access to financial services. Without any means of getting a bank account or of sending money cheaply, being able to borrow or get insurance, many people in these countries are shut out from the global financial system. As they continue to transact in cash, they're left behind as the rest of the world goes online to an ever greater extent. A high level of unbanked people tends to correlate with inequality, poverty, unemployment and even poor health. Studies have shown that life expectancy increases when financial inclusion goes up. Dr Jane Thomason has worked extensively in Papua New Guinea. She's a contributor to the Commonwealth's Fintech Toolkit. 2.5 billion people in the world are unbanked, therefore they're not part of the traditional banking system. So that's the first problem, they're unserved. The second problem is that the traditional banking system is expensive, so transactions are costly. And then the third problem is that none of it's digital, which means that if you're a villager in Papua New Guinea or in Indonesia or in Ghana and you need to go and pick up a remittance that's been sent to you by a member of your family, then you need to probably hire some kind of form of transportation to travel down to the nearest town or district centre that's got a bank or got a Western Union in order to be able to pick up your money. So that takes time. So the issue with the traditional banking system is it doesn't serve those people who are unbanked and for those who are banked, it's expensive and slow. Ten years ago, Papua New Guinea faced an uphill battle with regard to financial services. In 2009, only a very small proportion of the population had a bank account, let alone access to other kinds of financial services. And with less than one in 20 births registered, 
it seemed that there was no way to bring Papua New Guineans into the financial system. With no means of proving their identity, banks wouldn't be able to offer them any kind of services, as they'd be opening themselves up to the threat of fraud and money laundering. The challenges didn't stop there. Less than 20% of the island even has access to a reliable source of electricity, while the terrain is challenging and more than four-fifths of the country live in rural areas. And with poor internet connectivity, and not even 5% of Papua New Guineans owning smartphones, there wasn't the same kind of opportunity for the island to leapfrog other countries that we've seen in parts of sub-Saharan Africa. In other words, Papua New Guinea faced some major hurdles if it was to improve financial inclusion. Elizabeth Jenia is the Assistant Governor for Corporate Affairs at the Bank of Papua New Guinea. In 2016, the central bank published a strategic plan for the four years up to 2020, with one of the key objectives being financial inclusion. Financial inclusion is one of the pillars of the Bank of PNG's strategic plan, and it is about making access to financial services being affordable and accessible for every Papua New Guinean citizen. Until relatively recently, about 90% of Papua New Guineans had no access to banking or financial services, the basic financial requirements we expect. People had no way of proving their identity. Dr Jane Thomason explains. Once you give people an identity and they're able to use a mobile phone to send and receive money, uh, perhaps use that identity to secure land title or property title, to use that identity to be able to engage in micro-grid green energy trading with solar power in villages, then you're connecting that person to the world in a way they've never been connected before. There was no certainty when it came to ownership of land or other valuable assets. And so disputes were more frequent and often bloody. In the most remote regions in Papua New Guinea, many people did not have consistent access to, to the official currency, the kina. So the trading in some places, the trading of goods and services um, usually reverted back to the old barter arrangement. And that often resulted in one party to the transaction getting more value than the other was also lack of financial education and, and information you know, that prevented the grassroots population from achieving financial security. The challenge we had was how do we reach them? Because there's no mains power, uh, there's no reliable internet. However, we did recognize the mobile phones was a growing thing here where a lot of people had the simple 2G SMS phones. And, and so we saw that as an opportunity. Technology seemed to be a potential answer to Papua New Guinea's problems, opening up the possibility of wider access to financial services for the country's citizens. The strategic plan was led by the governor of the Bank of PNG, Loy Bakani. According to the World Bank, it's one of only a handful of island nations to have instituted an official financial inclusion strategy. And it was one of the first to do so following in the footsteps of Comoros and Madagascar. But as Dr Jane Thomason explains, they needed to work with other collaborators in government and the private sector to make the plan work. There are donors involved. There's a grouping of private banks that are helping test out the digital trust framework that they're working on. But it remains really a central bank-led initiative, not a whole-of-government initiative for Papua New Guinea. So there will still remain, for any kind of technology that they're developing, 
the need to be able to collaborate and cooperate with other government departments that might be relevant, let's say, for identity in terms of civil registration or in terms of technology, the technology department or ministry. So, uh, and I think this is one of the complexities that people need to understand. The deployment needs a whole-scale implementation plan, which includes that interoperability with legacy systems, but also includes education for other government departments and other people to see how doing this is going to create widespread benefits for the population. So the fact that you've got a technology solution doesn't mean successful implementation. Dr Jane Thomason makes an important point. Even the most cutting-edge technology is hardly ever good enough to be the answer to any complex issue in and of itself. Any technological solution requires cultural, societal and structural changes to go alongside it, which are specific to each country. The Bank of PNG realised this. Papua New Guinea had to face several unique challenges. One of them was the nature of its terrain. It's one of the largest and most mountainous islands in the world, with much of the country covered in rainforest, making it tricky to set up reliable telecommunications infrastructure. Another is the fragmented nature of its society. Its population of just over 8.5 million people speaks more than 800 languages. As Elizabeth Jenya explains. So as the institution with the responsibility of making sure that Papua New Guinea has a viable and effective financial system, the bank needed to find a way through or around the barriers to financial inclusion that took into account the physical and the social and psychological reality of the PNG situation. And so we saw blockchain's potential for solving these challenges. Of course, embarking on what many people thought was a radical approach brought its own challenges, uh, such as finding enough factual information to make considered decisions and learning to separate the real value from the hype. The Bank of PNG is not the first to look into blockchain. A report by the World Economic Forum last year found that more than 40 central banks around the world are experimenting with the technology. Blockchain is a decentralised database which allows transactions to be made between two parties without the need for an intermediary. Some people think the technology has the potential to modernise industries such as trade and banking. But as Elizabeth Jenner alludes to, there's an incredible amount of hype in this area and a great many opportunistic peddlers of this hype, or to put it another way, snake oil salesmen, who make it seem that every one of the world's problems can be solved with blockchain. As a journalist, I've seen pictures from people claiming blockchain can solve everything from getting rid of COVID-19 to achieving world peace. That's obviously not the case, and claims about the technology should be approached in a measured and balanced way. In order to find genuinely promising applications of the technology, the central bank helped set up what they call the PNG Digital Commerce Association in 2017. It's a body that's looking into fintech developments in the corporate sector all over the world, and although it's private, Governor Bakani remains the co-founding chair of the association. Elizabeth Jenia says that during the research phase, it was important to not assume they would find something off the peg that would work in PNG. We don't claim to be technology experts, so we were very cautious. And we realised that this was the first. It was a real pioneering work. There were no clear, um, tried and true solutions already in place that we could rely on or use to be guaranteed to work in Papua New Guinea. We had to develop something on our own because we are unique. When we went to London, a lot of people didn't know Papua New Guinea. And so 
it didn't make sense to actually commit to, you know, just one track, one idea, because it might not have taken us to where we needed to go. We needed to explore a range of other potential pathways. The team from Papua New Guinea trialled several projects as they looked around to find what would work for them. Research into technology led the team to establish new partnerships and to realise the fundamental importance of regulation. The Asian Development Bank joined the project in late 2017, bringing in extra funding focused particularly on regulation and developing a regulatory sandbox. Lotte Skal-Zabel is the Regional Director for the Asian Development Bank in Sydney. So what's important about a regulatory sandbox is basically a process that allows a developer or a company to validate a concept or new financial solution or a product that would otherwise not be possible under existing regulations. So the objective of a sandbox is really to demonstrate commercial viability before it's scaled to a wider group of financial institutions or replicated. And really creating this controlled environment allows countries to encourage innovation while also maintaining oversight over the financial system. So it's really important to balance innovation, risk, reach of financial services and financial stability. So the regulatory sandbox, it's really important for developing new solutions in a safe and sound environment before it is scaled to a wider group of consumers. It's also important to continue to discuss and to share information and lessons learned from the various different sandboxes that have been developed around the world. And I think there are about 30-some sandboxes already developed and a number of other ones already in process. So we're still learning. There's no one-size-fits-all to any regulatory sandbox. And you always have to adjust it to, to each different jurisdiction. But there are a few common features or high-level features that one always needs to consider when developing a regulatory sandbox. So, for example, at a policy layer, you need to consider what's the objective of the sandbox. Is it to understand a technology? Is it to modernize a regulation? Is it to develop a market? And is a regulatory sandbox the appropriate solution, or can you find other solutions? As Lotta says, one of the key objectives of the sandbox is around learning, both from the perspective of the regulators getting to understand the businesses that are in the sandbox, and also from the perspective of the startups themselves, who can learn what works and what doesn't before they bring the products to market. Regulatory sandboxes allow startups to test out their products in a small-scale, supervised environment. Their backers say they're a good way to ensure that consumers aren't exposed to products that haven't been comprehensively tested and to ensure that regulators understand the businesses. The idea was pioneered by the UK's Financial Conduct Authority, where there have already been five sandbox cohorts, which have been credited for helping Britain be seen as an attractive place for startups, helping create a supportive, light-touch regulatory environment. But critics argue that they create a race to the bottom among global jurisdictions to have the softest regulatory frameworks, potentially putting consumers at risk as doors are open for businesses that don't have citizens' best interests at heart. Being accepted into a sandbox is often used as free publicity. Startups tend to use this as a kind of stamp of approval, which it shouldn't be, and a way of getting funding. Unsuspecting consumers and investors see that the company has had some kind of regulatory approval and decide they can trust it without being fully aware of the risks. Acknowledging these drawbacks, some jurisdictions, like Bermuda, 
have introduced a pre-sandbox option where startups can develop and trial their ideas with opt-in users before moving on to a more formal sandbox. Another way to mitigate the risks is to enforce confidentiality around a startup's inclusion in a sandbox. In parallel with setting up the sandbox, the Bank of PNG used hackathons, mostly held in London, to develop technological solutions to the specific challenges faced on the island. A hackathon is an event that brings together computer programmers and developers who try to crack a problem in a very short time period, usually over the course of one, two or three days. Callum Holmes is the technology advisor to the Bank of PNG and ran the hackathons. He explains that it took some time to settle on the questions they needed to answer. Then we realised that there are some rather peculiar situations, environmental conditions in PNG. And really the whole thing is kind of bundled forward from there, from identity to understanding blockchain, to sponsoring hackathons, to having another round, looking at identity solutions that fit our rather unique environment. It became clear that identification was the most pressing challenge the country faced on its path towards greater financial inclusion. Being able to prove your identity is a fundamental part of the banking system. When a bank signs someone up to its services, it needs to be able to know who that customer is and needs a way of being sure that they are who they say they are. Know your customer rules, often referred to simply as KYC, are a vital component of anti-money laundering checks, but require a way for a customer to be able to prove their own identity. Given that so few Papua New Guineans are registered onto any kind of official system at birth, one of the key challenges that the Bank of PMG has had to face in thinking about improving access to financial services has therefore been identity. We realised that identity was so key, was we gave them a challenge that said, we want you to go away and we want you to come back in three days' time or two and a half days' time with solutions using these technologies to help us address the identity issue, because less than 5% of all Papua New Guineans have got a birth certificate. The first hackathons resulted in one trial project, but as Lotte explains, the Asian Development Bank supported another hackathon in 2018 to go further. We designed the hackathon uh, specifically to address the challenges in Papua New Guinea, where very few people have a birth certificate, very few people have access to internet, um, electricity, and people may not even have a mobile phone. Smartphones are not very common. The most common phones are just the very basic, simple phones. So we designed the, the hackathon specifically for those challenges that face the people in Papua New Guinea, and also to allow them to access the financial services by providing them with a way of proving who they are. The Bank of PNG decided that the winning solution had to be developed in parallel with a regulatory framework and had to use blockchain technology. Dr Jane Thomason says there are good reasons why they decided to use blockchain, which allows peer-to-peer -peer transactions to take place without the need for a third party to validate them, unlike in a traditional financial transaction. The beautiful thing about blockchain is by and large it's open source, so people can go in and they can look at code that other people have written and they can build on that code. But I think what's different, and this really is a limiting factor for many countries, is the rules and the regulations in each country are different. Therefore, you can't necessarily take something around transfer of digital assets from one country where it's legal to transfer digital assets 
and then willy-nilly put that into another country. So the whole kind of legislative framework needs to be had a look at at the same time as the introduction of the technology. But countries need to do work in preparation in order to be able to take an innovation that's been developed in Papua New Guinea or Samoa or Bermuda and then move it to another country and implement it there. The, everything's got to be executed in context. The PNG team were aware that the project could end up funding innovations that wouldn't work for them, but would be sold for use elsewhere. Callum Holmes said they wanted to ensure that PNG would benefit from the innovation coming through the sandbox. We've made it a condition on your being accepted into the sandbox. And if you come out of the sandbox successful, you must implement in Papua New Guinea within nine months. Otherwise, PNG will get no benefit. The winners of the September 2018 hackathon were Digizen, a company based in Helsinki. Their CEO is Kimo Koivisto. They began work to see if their idea could translate on the ground in PNG, a world away from Finland. There were several challenges, uh, interestingly, how to get access to the remote villages in rural areas. The roads were in quite poor condition that we needed to have four-wheel drives. There were rivers to be crossed and also uh, the heat is, uh, for us living in the Nordic countries, incredible in the Papua New Guinea jungle. Ditchen is tailor-made solution for Papua New Guinea and one of the main differentiators for Ditchen is the offline capability of the system that it can be used in environments where there's seldom online connectivity. Another difference is that uh, using Ditchen doesn't require any expensive devices for people to have. They only need a low-cost smart card. Uh, and the third difference is that uh, when using Ditchen, you don't need to be illiterate. You don't need to remember pin codes or passwords, but you can still use the system without having uh, knowledge to read or write. Given the challenges of literacy levels in PNG, where less than two-thirds of the adult population can read and write, and the potential for identity theft, Digizen chose to use fingerprints as the basis of their digital identity systems, as well as issuing photographic ID cards to everyone registered. You always need to identify yourself with your digital access tool card where the bank agent will compare your appearance with the card and that is required to perform any, any transactions. We use fingerprint scanning to do deep duplication and make sure everybody can be registered to the system only once and they can't take several identities. To make sure we don't put biometric data at risk, we don't store any biometric data except the photo of the person, but we don't store fingerprints on the cards, but they are only stored on the central servers and they are encrypted, so it means that they are not exposed if any of the cards are lost and there's also no external connection to the servers. And if, even if someone would manage to get access to the servers, there's still the encryption on the way that uh, the biometric data can't be stolen. Any new project can try to foresee potential difficulties, but testing on the ground is crucial to see if it will actually work for the people who are meant to be using it. Concept testing for the Digizen tool happened at several sites in the East Sepik province. They've now been testing on the ground since January 2019. Digison recorded people getting their ID cards for the first time. As long as they have the card, they can come and then do the transaction. 
and they're withdrawn. And no more standing in line for fingerprints. <laughs> <laughs> I love this, this is wonderful. Digiton say the tests have been successful. In the field trials, from a village population of just over 1,000 people, they signed up 100 volunteers. I would say that they were screaming to get, get identified and screaming to get access to, to banking services. So when we went to the villages, we usually had quickly a long line forming behind us and people were really asking that when can we get ourselves a digital card. But there are still hurdles to overcome. Educating people about the new technology and the ID system are central to its success and an ongoing task for the team. Uh, compared to Western worlds where all the information is documented, uh, spoken word culture. So we went there through the uh, community chiefs who introduced us to the villages and they helped us to explain to the villagers. They usually have a, a bigger shade or cover to cover from the sun under which everybody gathers up and there the information can be exchanged by giving oral presentation to everybody around. One of the main areas of public training was around privacy, which was a major concern for the Bank of PNG, but wasn't initially something that many of the system's users seemed to be concerned about. There were other concerns, though, among some parts of the population. They don't really question the privacy issues. Uh, there have been some rumours that when you're, for example, reading fingerprints, you're taking a person's soul uh, by reading those fingerprints, or similar with photos, that there's a lot of superstitions uh, rumored to be in Papua New Guinea. However, when we did our testing in five different villages in East Epic, we didn't encounter any of these, these issues. However, uh, we are working with Asian Development Bank and with the Bank of Papua New Guinea, and they're very strict on following the privacy best practices. And for this reason, we have a third party consulting company specialized in regulatory frameworks and privacy who are verifying our data governance model. And we have also a third party auditing the cybersecurity of our system to make sure that uh, people's privacy and people's information is protected and kept secure. As the team acknowledge, just because the people of Papua New Guinea don't seem to be particularly concerned about their privacy at the moment, that doesn't mean they shouldn't be. The lessons from India, whose Adhar digital ID system is the most developed in the world, with about 1.3 billion people signed up, are that privacy can easily be compromised in a digital system. Critics of Adhar say that India has effectively established a kind of big brother system with the government able to spy on its citizens by monitoring their movements and spending in real time. There have also been problems with identity theft and identification without consent. Kimo Koivisto says that Digizen learned that lesson and is more secure than other systems. Also, it doesn't need to be connected to the internet to work. We are using a higher level of security by using smart cards that work as the secure element for the system. So it gives two benefits. One is that it makes it possible to use the system offline, but the other benefit is that it, so we meet the security requirements for strong two-factor authentication set by, for example, European Union. This is an ongoing project that is still being tested in PNG's regulatory sandbox. The coronavirus pandemic has, unfortunately, affected their progress, unsurprisingly. Early 2020 was meant to have seen Digizen conduct a full pilot involving 20,000 people, but this has now been rescheduled to early 2021. It's not all bad news, though. 
Dr. Jane Thomason and Lotta Scalza Bell of the Asian Development Bank say COVID-19 has given their project a new sense of urgency. In a way, COVID has been an incredible accelerant for innovation because we've had to find ways of making digital payments because people can't go near each other. There's so many challenges that the pandemic has put in front of us and it's shown us how digital we can be when we need to be. In response to COVID, many countries are developing fiscal stimulus packages and many include cash transfers, but they don't have any effective means of delivering the cash transfers. We're moving towards more non-cash payments. COVID is driving this digitization and also driving non-cash payments. So it is an opportunity that we have right now is to, you know, we have to seize this opportunity to, to really make a difference for the people and to allow them to effectively and efficiently access these funds. It looks like a promising start. And as Elizabeth Jenner of the Bank of PNG says, they're already being seen as pioneers and advisors to other countries in the region. Our journey up until now has been one of discovery. It's, it's, we're still researching. And having said that, we do have a lot of inquiries that have you know, written to us. We, we respond to their queries and when they ask for assistance, we assist them wherever we can. And we do that not only in PNG, but within the Pacific as well, particularly with the central banks that we engage with. Papua New Guinea has found itself a possible technological solution to one of the key challenges it faces in bringing people into the financial system. If all goes well, the country will have found itself a way to allow its citizens to access banking and other financial services via a digital ID system, which should help the country become more developed and bring it into closer contact with global commerce. Once digital identities have been established, that opens the doors to business. While that can be positive, there's also the potential for opportunists to swoop in and take advantage of people's lack of experience. Given the Bank of PNG's caution around issues of privacy, one would hope they'll be similarly vigilant about not allowing consumers to be ripped off, no matter how tempting it is to bring business onto the island. Papua New Guinea is a country with poor internet connectivity, low mobile phone usage and many development challenges. They think that blockchain will be useful for them. I still wonder if this particular tech is necessary here. It seems to me that a regular encrypted database could do the job just as well. China is an example of a country that looks seriously into using blockchain to modernise various bits of its economy, such as for a digital currency, but has for now decided they'll do this using a centralised system instead. Perhaps, like other projects elsewhere, the blockchain component of this project will be eventually scrapped. Time will tell. Papua New Guinea's identity system appears to be succeeding so far partly because it's trying to implement quite a simple solution. The system also incorporates culture which already exists by using community vouching to sign up people without official documents, therefore removing another barrier. Other digital ID systems, such as the one the UK government has been trying to establish for almost a decade, haven't really got off the ground so far because of being too ambitious and trying to do too much. The PNG project is also managing to gain traction because rather than rolling out a one-size-fits-all solution and hoping it'll work everywhere, the product has been built specifically for Papua New Guinea. A digital ID for extreme conditions, as it calls itself. What Papua New Guinea has proven is that it is possible to be a small developing island state and still be nimble, creative and forward-thinking when it comes to solving seemingly intractable problems. Thank you for listening to Fintech Journeys. 
If you'd like to find out more and download the Commonwealth FinTech Toolkit, please visit www.thecommonwealth.org forward slash fintech. The Commonwealth's FinTech Journeys podcast was created in partnership with the Commonwealth Secretariat and Chalk and Blade.